Hey, is this Kelly? This is. Hey, Kelly, James Basinger, giving you a call. I'm the guy from Washington State looking for Ron Evans. Oh, yeah, okay. Just wanted to check in. He never reached back out to me, um, and I know you already passed along my number to him, and uh, just trying to see if there is maybe another chance that you could reach out to him, let him know that I'm still trying to get in touch with him. I sure I can send him a text. Yeah, they moved out of the house. Oh, he and, did. Uh, yeah, they moved on, so I'm not. Uh, they never gave me a forwarding address, so they they moved out uh, last month at the end of this last month. So. Oh really? Yes, sir. Okay. Wow. Yeah, uh, I'll send I'll send him a text to let him know that you're you're reaching out and uh, and and uh, let him know that you're and I'll pass on your number again. Appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you. Right, bye bye. Bye bye. She's a rolling like a pagan Searching places that I've never gone Destroying bones with endless bones But ain't no rock can stop me from getting through Hey guys, I want to catch you guys up on my experience at CrimeCon and everything that took place while we were there. First, I want to say thank you for everyone who came by our booth and supported us in our presentation and our live podcast session. Uh, It was an amazing time to be able to sit there and hear from all of you guys and all the support that we received, especially for Sam and Bill. Now, in the last episode, I told you guys that I had some exciting news that I was going to share while I was there. Now, For some of you, you may have not heard it if you didn't catch our live podcast session, but uh, if you want to go to the Facebook page, you can actually find the live session that we did while we were there, but I'll also share it here. During our trip, Mickey Hamilton, the new detective assigned to Nancy's case from Thurston County, did go with us. And the major reason why Detective Hamilton was there is because Thurston County is now deciding to open up the case file with me and the professionals that are assisting me with Nancy's case. And I shouldn't have to tell you this, but that's huge. This kind of thing doesn't happen. So why are they doing this? Well, CrimeCon has decided to try something new in an approach that, and what could possibly be revolutionary when it comes to cold cases such as Nancy's. Now, because we're working out exactly how we're going to do this and the method and the steps and the process, I can't share too much because it's still in the works. But if you go to CrimeCon's website, you'll see that there's an event for October in Seattle. And the title of this event for CrimeCon is called CrowdSolve. This event is happening on October 18th through the 20th. And the great thing about this event is that we're gonna be guided by experts and surrounded by key players in this case, where we'll be able to work along together to try to find out what happened to Nancy. I wanna first say thank you so much to Kevin Balfi, who puts on all the CrimeCon events and selecting Nancy's case. 
And I want to share with you guys, there were a lot of factors going into which case that they selected for the CrowdSolve event. A couple of those factors were the family being supportive, which we do have, and then also the sheriff's department willing to help us and assist us for this event. So again, another shout out to a gentleman by the name of Arthur Roderick. Now, if you don't know who Art is, go look this man up. He's got such a great background and very educated when it comes to missing person cases or even handling national media attention cases, such as the Ruby Ridge or the DC Sniper case. Art has appeared on numerous law enforcement programs, including episodes of America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries. Art executive produced and starred in the History Channel's award-nominated special, Alcatraz, Search for the Truth, and its follow-up special, Alcatraz, The Lost Evidence, in 2018. And so again, I just wanted to say how excited I am for this event in October to have Art, his team, and the additional specialists that are going to be coming in, along with Thurston County support. This would be a great event for you to attend to help us figure out what happened to Nancy, especially because if we have so many eyes looking over the case, this is going to give us a greater opportunity to be able to find out what happened to her. So be sure to stay tuned into the event in October. Now, another major announcement I wanted to share with you guys was about Bernard Howell. For a while now, I told you guys that I've been working with someone that was close to him. Well, that was his sister. His sister and I have been in contact, and when this all originally started with Nancy's case, and obviously Bernard Howell was a suspect, Bernard's sister reached out to me because she wanted to discuss the case and how Bernard could or could not be involved. Now, at that point, during my investigation, I had already emailed Bernard, but yet I hadn't received anything back from him. Now, she hadn't spoken with Bernard for quite a few years, but I asked her if she would be willing to email him or write him a letter on my behalf. Well... We finally got a response, and Bernard said he's willing to meet with me. So I submitted my application, and this is something that he needs to approve first, even though he wrote in a letter to his sister saying he was willing to meet with me, I still needed to get the okay from him directly. Once I submitted my application, 30 days later, I've been approved. So now at the beginning of this episode, you heard me reach out to the property manager, Kelly. Him and I spoke briefly about him reaching out to Ron Evans and letting him know that I was trying to speak with him. He couldn't give me his cell phone number because, well, confidentiality reasons. But, as you heard, Ron's moved. After numerous amount of months of trying to locate Ron, he's off the radar again. I can't find him. I don't know if the podcast has anything to do with this or not, but when Kelly said, I sure I can send him a text. Yeah, they moved out of the house. Well, who's they? In this entire process, Ron has been the most intriguing piece of the puzzle. Something new that I found out about Ron was that he was the one that signed off on Nancy's missing person report on March 11th. And the thing about Ron is he knows I'm looking for him and he has my cell phone number. Why he won't call me, I don't know. I mean, it could just be a coincidence that he's moving or it could mean something. I'm gonna continue to press on the people that he knows and see if they can encourage him to call me. But I wanted to start off with the first officer that responded to the missing person report on March 11th. This officer's name is Officer Samuelson. Good. Hey, is this James? Yes. Hey, James. My name is James Basinger. How you doing? Who are you? And why are you calling me? I'm calling you because uh, I believe you were working with Tonino Police Department in 2009. How'd you get this number? I explained to James how I got it. 
Well, if I could chat with you on record, because I'm doing a podcast documentary for the Nancy Moyer case that you were the first responder to on when Bill Moyer filed the missing person report. Do you recall that? Yeah, I'm aware of you. Oh, are you? Oh, yeah. Okay. Is that, that sounds like a bad thing. No, no, I, I just, until things are done, I'm not going to talk about it. Well, I guess specifically, I, I know that you were just the first responder and... You know, it was handed over to Thurston County Sheriff's Office, and uh, detect or Detective Haller at the time, who's now retired, has uh, he took over. But I had some questions uh, about the timing of the missing person report that was filed. It looks like you were the person that was responded to Bill Moyer's phone call, and then I'm sorry, I am not available, and I can't make any comment. I'd appreciate it if you'd keep me out of it. Have a good day. Well. I didn't expect that. Why James won't talk? I don't know. And when James says he doesn't want to talk about it until it's all over, well, it's been 10 years and nothing's happening. And obviously you can hear his frustration or lack of desire to wanting to speak with me. It's tough because James was the one who responded to the missing person report. Now, if James went to Ron and had to get that missing person report approved, I don't know, but that's why I want to ask. This all happened on March 11th, not March 9th, which was Monday, when Bill Moyer was told he needed to wait 48 hours. Who told him that? Did an officer first try to file the report, and then did Ron say they needed to wait 48 hours? Again, remember, the 48-hour rule or process was no longer required. A month before, in February, the policy changed. They no longer needed to wait 48 hours. So let's put this all together. If Ron was the one responsible for telling Bill that he needed to wait 48 hours, and then he arrives at Nancy's residence the same day, March 9th, and tells Bill and Brian to stop talking to the neighbors and leave Nancy's residence, and then not long after that, he swaps out his patrol vehicle. There are so many issues and concerns there. Where I want to go next with this is to introduce you guys to the newly assigned detective to Nancy's case. All right, so have you had a chance to catch up on the case file? It's a large case file from what I've been told. I have. I've been going through it a little bit. Okay. This is Detective Mickey Hamilton, and he's the fourth detective assigned to Nancy's case. Detective Hamilton has a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. From 2007 until 2013, he worked as a patrol officer with the Flagstaff Police Department in Arizona. And in 2013, that's when he made the move to Washington State and started working for Thurston County Sheriff's Office. And so now at the beginning of this year, he is now the major crimes detective for Thurston County Sheriff's Office. So in my opinion, given a new pair of eyes to look over the case and the attention that it's now getting, this is exactly who we needed. And when Detective Hamilton took over Ben Elkin's office, he did ask, was he taking on Nancy's case? Initially, he was told no, because now Thurston County has a cold case unit and that Nancy's case was going to be assigned to them. But it wasn't until CrimeCon CrowdSolve that Thurston County said that they wanted Mickey handling the case now. Her desk. I know that there was a specific item on the calendar that was erased. It looked like it was erased, at least. Do you recall what that was or if it was collected? Yeah, so they collected her desk calendar from her office because on the date that she went missing, she had something written there, and then she had scratched it out because it was in pen. So she scratched it out. So they submitted that desk calendar to the crime lab to see if the specialist could determine what had been written there. And they could 
identify like three words and none of them were helpful. One of them was recycle, I think. Um, and then a couple words like has and nothing that was, could really give you any indication about what the overall message was about. Did it say anything on her calendar at all about a date, like going on a date with somebody? No, not that I recall seeing. Okay. Uh, anything else that was collected that was, I guess, important? From her office? Yeah. No, not that I recall. And then let's let's now start with, because this has been something that, that's been kind of new to me that you kind of introduced me to at CrimeCon when we were there was the wine glasses that were in Nancy's home. I've always been under the understanding and is that there was two wine glasses on the kit, the coffee table in the living room, but you're mentioning that there was three, possibly four, maybe even five. I mean, can you clear that up for me? Yeah. So based on the search warrant photos and, uh, you know, descriptions of the, the residents and things like that, it appears there were two glasses on the coffee table in the living room. One of them had this liquid in it that they believe to be wine like wine. The other one was, now it's always been described as a wine glass, but looking at the pictures of it, it's more like a glass mug. It's not really something that you would typically drink wine out of. You could, mean you could drink anything out of it, but it's not a wine glass the way when I hear the word wine glass, I think of a typical wine glass. It's just a glass mug. And I noticed on the table around that glass, there's some change, just loose change laying there. And so it almost looked to me like possibly that they, she kept changing this glass jar and then she dumped it out there on the coffee table to count it for whatever reason. She just came back from the store and she bought some smoke, so maybe she was trying to get enough change for, uh, I don't know. You know, obviously I don't know because I can't ask her. But it just, to me, there was a lot of kind of suspicion about, well, was she expecting somebody because there's a second glass that was sitting out. But it's not a wine glass. And then... In the uh, dining or the kitchen, there's two wine glasses. They're traditional wine glasses like you would expect to find a wine glass. It, they were sitting next to the sink, and it looked like they were dirty. They were with some other dirty dishes waiting to be washed. Um, those four glasses were all collected in the search warrant. Now, there was a fifth wine glass with an amount of red liquid that looked like wine in her bedroom on her nightstand. That one was photographed but was not collected. Oh, really? Why? Yeah. Why wasn't? Why wouldn't they collect that? Well, that's hard to guess. Um, I don't know because I wasn't there. Nobody that was left is left at our agency that was still working at that time. Either the evidence detectives or the other detectives. Speculation, from my point, is that they had no indication that any part of the crime occurred in the bedroom. At the time, they're not investigating a crime, right? They're investigating a missing person. They just right. don't know what happened to her back in 2009. Because Detective Haller served a search warrant on the house like two days after he got the report about her missing. So they're just looking for some clue as to where she might have gone. And so I think that's probably why they didn't collect that wine glass from the bedroom. But again, that's completely speculation on my part with 10 years later. So it's challenging for them because, like you said, I mean, they, they didn't know this was technically, you know, a crime scene or what could have led to her disappearance with the wine glasses. I mean, there was no way of them determining that because there was no forced entry. There was no evidence of showing two people having some sort of physical interaction where you would say, okay, this is, this is the crime scene. It, that wasn't the right. case. Right. There's no signs of a struggle. There's no, so, you know, you're not, you don't know what you're looking for when you're investigating a missing person. You don't know what is going to be significant. Um, they got that search warrant to get in the house just to look to 
see if there was any clues. Maybe maybe there's a note that she left behind that they missed or something like that. You don't know what you're looking for when you're investigating a missing person. You don't know what is going to be significant. Um, they got that search warrant to get in the house just to look to see if there was any clues. Maybe maybe there's a note that she left behind that they missed or something like that. Is it a little odd to you? Because it, it kind of seems odd to me that... that- even though, yes, you know, as like we're saying, it's not we didn't know what to collect or look for at that time. But at that time, all the glasses that were out, at least that were wine glasses or like the mug on the coffee table, those were collected except the one in the and this was in the bedroom. Well, somewhat, we, I can see where you're going, but at the same time, they collected all of the stuff that were in pairs. And I think they would they were under the assumption that maybe gotcha. if there were two people there then we need to collect both of these because we don't know which one Nancy was drinking out of and maybe another person was using the other one. Whereas the one in her bedroom is a single glass by itself. On her nightstand in the master bedroom, it's pretty clear that that was her glass. So with the glasses that they did collect, did they fingerprint and DNA test all the glasses? Well, interestingly enough, I had always been under the assumption that they had. But once I started looking through the case file, I found out that none of the evidence was submitted for DNA testing. So I want to pause for a second to explain what latent prints are. Naturally, there's this universal understanding of when you run prints, that means everything. But there really are three specific types of prints that they run for. There's latent, impressed, and patent prints. Patent prints are those fingerprints that are easily spotted without the use of magnesium powders, ultraviolet lights, or chemicals that might assist in the visualization of such a print. Now, impressed prints, those are made in soft material or tissue by pressing down with the finger or hand. These prints can be photographed or, in certain circumstances, molds made if they are very fragile. Now, Latin prints, that's what we're dealing with here, are prints that are not visible to the naked eye but do exist. Okay, so let me explain to you what exactly latent prints means. They're visualized using magnesium powder, which is gently brushed over over these hard and shiny surfaces, in order to illuminate them. Once this is done, the prints can be photographed or what they refer to as lifted using a variety of different tapes. And then the death calendar was submitted to the lab to see if the expert could determine maybe what had been you know, written there prior to it being marked out. So... I went down to our evidence guys, and again, this case file is massive, so there's always a chance that it happened, and I just wasn't finding the lab reports or something. So I went down to our evidence guys, and I talked to them, and again, they're not the same evidence guys now that were working in 2009 on this case. So I said, you know, was was anything ever submitted for DNA on this Nancy Moyer case? And they said, well, yeah, it just all came back to her. And I said, really? Well, I can't find, I can't find the... Uh, these lab reports on what was submitted, what wasn't submitted, because we still have a lot of other evidence besides the wine glasses in evidence. And so they started looking through the, the reports, and they couldn't find them either. He said, you know what, it looks like they didn't ever send these for DNA analysis. So wow. he said, but let's just see if maybe we both can't find what we're looking for. We'll call the state crime lab and ask them if they have any record that we ever sent anything for DNA analysis. So they called the state crime lab in Tacoma. And they said, because they can, use, they can cross-reference our case number with their case numbers, and they say, no, you submitted the glasses for latent prints, and you submitted the death calendar for analysis, but nothing was ever submitted for DNA in this case. Is that, un- so then, is that like, uncommon for that to happen? Um, it, well, it's, again, I think that it happened because this was originally a missing person case. And going back to that fact, on a missing 
analyze DNA because they're a crime lab. They are only analyzing stuff from crime. And when you have a missing person, not a crime. So while it was a missing person, I think that stuff was just sitting there and it didn't meet the criteria that the state crime lab needs in order to do their analysis. And then it was changed from a, you know, a missing person to a no-body homicide in 2013. That would have been the opportunity. Now it qualifies for a crime and it should be analyzed for DNA. But I think that just got missed because, again, we have a whole different group of detectives working on the case now and a whole different group of evidence guys who all thought that it had already been done possibly and like I did. And it just got overlooked and wasn't done. Have you had the chance so, to reach out to Ben Elkins about that? Yeah, uh, Elkins, initially when I started realizing that all these reports I'm reviewing and all the lab results and everything, there's nothing in, in this, anything about DNA. So I had asked him, hey, did you submit anything for DNA? Are you aware of anything that was ever submitted for DNA? And he said, no, we don't have a suspect profile to compare it against. That is one issue that we don't have a definite suspect that we want to compare the DNA against. However, you know, I'm aware that another useful tool for DNA is building a profile so that you can put it into CODIS and then run it and see, you know, periodically every year, see if it's going to ever match to a known offender. Okay, so what is CODIS? CODIS is the acronym for Combined DNA Index System, and it's the program that the FBI uses. So how does it work? Well, for example, in the case of sexual assault where an evidence kit is collected from the victim, a DNA profile of the suspected perpetrator is developed from the swabs in the kit. Once a match is identified by the CODIS software, the laboratories involved in the match exchange information to verify the match and establish coordination between their two agencies. The match for the forensics DNA record against the DNA record in the database may be used to establish probable cause to obtain an evidentiary DNA sample from the suspect. And, you know, there's all kinds of famous cases that are solved that way where we didn't know who the suspect was, but, you know, a few years later we find out that it matches a serial rapist or serial murderer or whatever. Well, if you, and I mean, you know more about this than I do, but if, if you were to collect, it's as easy as, as a thumbprint or a fingerprint or, 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 or saliva, is it, because some of the people that are involved in the case, for example, Jim Roth, or, you know, even a couple of other individuals have been suspects, such as Ron Evans, for example, why the heck would his DNA be inside her house or on her wine glasses, or, you know, just people who have been considered and looked into wouldn't their DNA naturally match up with something that's on a wine glass or cigarette butt in her car or even her bed sheets? I mean, wouldn't that be a concrete evidence of saying this person was there? You know, you need to explain yourself now? Yeah, you know, obviously if their DNA is at the scene, they need to explain it. But part of the problem with this case too, and another reason why it maybe never was analyzed for DNA is all these people that we have looked at as these persons of interest admitted to being at her house one time or another. So us showing that they were there isn't necessarily going to prove anything one way or the other other than that they were there, and they all freely admit that they were there. Except for Ron Evans, which that would be a different case because, as far as I know, nobody's ever linked Ron Evans to being inside of her house. But, you know, um, the other, the co-workers and people like that that they collect DNA comparison samples to from, we would expect to find their DNA there because they told us they were in the house. Would it mean anything if their DNA was found on specifically the wine glasses? I don't know. Maybe it, we would have to go back and see what, what they had said they'd done. I think it would be more significant because if, if somebody had wine with her and then left that out of their initial statement, like, 
why are you leaving this out? This seems like a significant detail, obviously, if you were drinking with her the night before she went missing. Right. So, yeah, I think, it, I think it would be significant, which is why I requested that the lab now submit all this uh, stuff for DNA analysis. So, How does that process work? If you're, so now, you're now submitting this stuff for DNA analysis to the evidence lab, how soon should we expect a response from them on this? Well, when we submit DNA or items for DNA analysis, the crime lab will only take five items at a time. So we kind of have to pick the five that we think are going to be the most viable and submit those. And then they'll look at those five. Now, if we want to submit five more later down the road, then we can do that. Now, I was told that because this is a cold case, it will get pretty low on the priorities. Nobody's sitting in jail in this case, whereas a lot of the other cases that they're homicides and things that they're they're working on at the moment that if we actually have suspects in jail, be trial issues and things like that. So those cases take priority. So I was given a time frame, a rough estimate of four to six months before we can expect any kind of results oh, wow. on uh, DNA from a cold case file. And it's it's pro I mean that's just normal DNA testing for per case. You're really only submitting five at a time. Right. And then have you decided on what items you're you're going to submit for DNA testing? I have not. I talked to the uh, evidence guys a little bit because that's their specialty. And I gave them my ideas about what, what I wanted to have submitted first. And they bounced some ideas off of me. And then they said, well, let's, cause we're, they're going to call the state crime lab DNA experts and get their take on it because that's their area of expertise. And they might have an idea about why they want to analyze one item over another. So once we get their input, then we'll make our final decision about what we're going to have analyzed. Of course, you're listening to their you know, opinions and their professional opinion. But at the end of the day, are you the one that's submitting and saying, hey, this is what I want tested? Uh, yeah, probably with heavy input from the evidence detector. So one topic I've been very hesitant to speak on or talk about publicly is the angel bag in Nancy's closet. When Detective Haller went through Nancy's house and was grabbing evidence, one thing he found in Nancy's closet was this bag with the label Angel on it. And again, I want to be very intentional and sensitive with the details I do or don't share, but this may be a piece that helps us discover what happened to Nancy. And I don't feel like I need to explain specifically what was in the bag, just that they were adult items. There was also a bag in Nancy's closet that was labeled Angel, and one of Dr. Maurice Godwin's questions was, you know, was that potentially almost like an alias she was using? Do you guys have that bag in evidence or the items inside of it? We do not. Oh, you don't? I was thinking the same thing when I read the reports initially about that bag is what is the significance of this name Angel label? And I thought, you know, is it a pseudonym for her? Is it a name of somebody who gave her the bag? But when I went back and looked at the police report, or the search warrant photograph, this angel is like the brand of this bag. It's not applied later oh. by someone else. It's a brand name logo. It almost looks to me like maybe the Victoria's Secret line of angel product or something like that. The actual bag is, was not collected, so we do not have it or any of its contents any, any longer. Um, they were left at the scene, eventually turned over to the family, and so my understanding that all that stuff were disposed of after a lot of years of waiting for Nancy to show up again. They didn't collect the the items, at least the items in the bag. Why wouldn't they collect that? I mean, because you could, you could check that for DNA testing. You could see, you know, who possibly she's been involved with. Right, yeah. I mean, that was a question that, that I had, too, because knowing now what we know, she was involved with, sounds like, multiple partners kind of a thing, and 
there might be some DNA evidence that would be significant on some of those items. However, again, we go back to what they knew in 2009 when they initially collected it. You find a bag of adult kind of items in a closet. Any search warrant that I've ever served would usually find something like that. And so it probably didn't seem any different or any more significant at that time than any other search warrant that they've done. And again, they don't really know what they're looking for other than anything that might be helpful. The other problem that, and so for a while I was kind of like, man, I wish that that would have been collected so that we could analyze it for DNA. Right. But then I'd go talk to our evidence guys about this whole issue about whether or not things are going to be submitted for DNA or not. And I find out that items that are heavily handled by multiple people can be very difficult to analyze for DNA and separate those different profiles from different individuals. You know, if we have one or two person DNA profiles on, on an item, it's pretty easy to separate those two profiles and say this came from person A and this came from person B. If we have three different DNA profiles, it gets pretty tricky. And if we have four or more DNA profiles in the same sample, then it's almost impossible to separate out what belongs to who and who and where those samples came from. So that may or may not have helped us. It'll be impossible to know. A lot of the people that are people of interest in this case admitted to having sexual relationships. So Again, what are we going to prove if we show, I guess it would have been nice if the person that has something yeah. to do with their disappearance is an outlier and somebody that we're not looking at. It, it, I see what you're saying. It's, it's challenging just because if you have too many, then it complicates it to the point where it's no longer even useful. But then let's say you find it, but then that person's already been considered a suspect and they've already admitted to having a relationship. Then what does that prove? It doesn't show right. a timeline of... Of, of that no. person's involvement with her. Yeah, there's no way to date DNA either. Yeah. There's no way to tell how long that DNA's been there. So that doesn't, that doesn't help us for a time frame either. In the case file that I have, it said that there was a cigarette butt that was an off-brand compared to the camel filters that she would normally smoke. Inside of her house, all we found were camels, but in her car ashtray, they found different brands cigarettes than what she typically smoked, and so we have those in evidence. That's one of those items that I'm looking at to submit for DNA. We also have her bedding, and again, that's fortunate that we collected her bedding. You know, we almost will get the similar kind of result from a DNA analysis on the bedding that we would expect to find in the adult item. So that might be just as useful to us as, as if we had collected that back. Is there a way, when you, when you check this DNA, when you guys run the DNA test and then come back with the results, will you guys immediately then check, cross-exam, or cross-reference the DNA with people that you've already collected DNA from? Yes. Detective Elkins did a great job of getting uh, control swab samples from everybody pretty much in the case. So anybody that, we, that was her coworker or that we know to be involved with her, we have a control sample to run it against so that we can show that it, it's not who it is or it isn't them. The original search warrant, they collected her toothbrush, and that would obviously have her DNA on it. So that would be a way that we can use that to compare against the profiles that we find. And then can you just clear up that there's no cell phone? I mean, you there's photos and videos that you've been able to, to look at, correct? No, there's no cell phone. There's never one collected. Um, there's not any on the photos that I looked through of the search warrant. They found her purse there by her shoes. They dumped out the contents of her purse. They photographed it before they did that. They dumped it out, photographed the contents of the purse, and I didn't see any cell phone. Um, they asked all of her family at the time if she had a cell phone, and they said no. Uh, Detective Howler went through all the phone records and didn't find any record of the phone. That's not to say she didn't have one that nobody knew about, but we don't have one in evidence. We didn't have any indication at the time that she had a cell phone. 
So when Nancy came back from the store, do we know exactly what she purchased when she was at the store? Yeah, they got the receipt from the store. It was a Hungry Man brand TV dinner. I think two bottles of wine and three packages of cigarettes. The TV dinner was eaten. Uh, the wrappers were in the garbage. One bottle of wine was open in the refrigerator and one was unopened and cold. So that kind of debunks one of my thoughts was maybe that she left with somebody to run to the store real quick, knowing she wasn't going to buy because she really didn't have money at that time. But, you know, I, I know that the check that she wrote that night did bounce. But is that if she had a second bottle of wine in the car or in the fridge, then the first bottle of wine that, that she had drank, there was still some liquid in it and left over. So there was no concern of her running out of wine that night, at least. No, I don't believe so, no. And the other thing that kind of, to me, you know, there was some speculation that she was expecting someone because she had the second glass out on the coffee table that was empty. But well, why did she only buy one TV dinner then uh, if she was expecting someone? Why wouldn't she prepare an actual meal? Or if they were planning on going out, why would she eat prior? I don't know. Of course, tough to say, but... Did you guys ever... I mean, I don't know if you might have to go back and check it, but was Jean Roth ever given a polygraph or her whereabouts or alibis for Friday night recorded? I don't believe that she did have a polygraph. I'm sure she gave her whereabouts. I, I'm almost positive Detective Howler after that, but I don't believe that she did ever submit to a polygraph. I would have to verify that. I don't remember ever seeing a polygraph for her. I went through the list of people who did submit to polygraph, but I just don't remember her name. Is the only thing for, for, for Ron Evans, I mean, he was kind of cleared because they didn't find anything in his car, even though he refused the poly. That was over a year later that they found out his vehicle was swapped out. And But I guess, why did Haller stop pursuing him? There Was it I'm just because sure. of the vehicle not having any hair or blood in it? No, I think it was a totality of the circumstances around that. didn't find any link between Nancy and Ron Evans. I don't know specifically. I, I just know that in his report it said that after you know reviewing all the, the information that was available to Nancy, I don't think that he necessarily was ruling him out. I just think that he, he looked at all the information that he could get hold of, whether he was interviewing people from Sonino or interviewing coworkers, and he just couldn't find a link between Ron and uh, Nancy. Ron Evans was the one I think you had told me that that had. Samuelson, who took the call for the missing person report on March 11th, and Ron Evans approved it. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like looking at the original Tonino report, Samuelson responded to report it. All of our reports have to be approved by a supervisor before they get submitted. Ron Evans was supervisor to go through that report. Do we know, because Bill says he attempted to file a missing person report on Monday, but was told that he, he needed to wait 48 hours. Do you know who would have holding that or do you know who took that call i would assume that uh for samuelson would have been the one that told him that but i don't know i can't confirm that should that be in writing anywhere if they just told him he needed to wait nah, probably not not from 2009 it might be in a call log somewhere you know the dispatch if you called the dispatch center which i think would i don't know that's tough because again i didn't work here in 2009 and i don't know what tonight i was doing as far as making people wait 48 hours or not making them wait 48 hours, if that policy changed or whatever, but it would be tough to say if that we could find any written record of who was the actual person that made that call. Because I, I think I, I told you before about how when they tried to file that report on Monday, they told him he needed to wait, and then he goes over, and then there's a cop that shows up and says, hey, you guys can't be here, because they were talking to the neighbors, asking if they'd heard anything, and they were there maybe five to ten minutes, and this officer shows up, and Brian and Bill are looking over the yard trying to see, and then they 
you know, if anything sticks out to them, then they go to the neighbor's house to ask if they notice anything odd. And then that officer shows up, tells them to leave because they can't do that, basically. And they need to let Tonino do their job. Yeah, I, I don't know. That seems odd to me, unless they didn't recognize who it was. I would expect the family is going to be curious and be out looking for somebody. If it was my family, I would be out looking for them. So, I don't know. That is a little odd that they would say, especially if they don't think that it's a, anything suspicious and they're just going to help look for this person who's overdue or whatever. And and Nancy never, you know, at least it was not known to the family or anybody really that, that you know, especially when it comes to people's background or if they're well known in the community for doing drugs but uh local law enforcement had no idea whether or not nancy would have been doing drugs or not doing drugs because you know one of the comments they made to brian and bill was you know she's you know probably on some sort of uh i don't want to quote this officer but from what brian and bill said drug binge and she'll be back in a couple of days so for them to know that or at least say that without knowing Nancy's background or her having a record. You know, that was just odd to me. It seems like a broad generalization because you're right. We never found any indication that Nancy had any real drug history. And I know he definitely never arrested her for anything like that. So I think he's just making a general statement that a lot of people that get reported to missing people are just drug users that are out on some kind of a, I don't know what you want to call it, but they'll, they eventually sober up and come back home. I guess he was making a broad statement. You know, again, I can't speak for why he would say that. So one of my suspicions, if Ron was responsible for this, and again, I'm just speculating, but if he knew that the 48-hour waiting period was no longer a requirement, and he told Bill that he needed to wait 48 hours, and then he arrives to Nancy's house to tell Bill and Brian that they needed to leave, could he have accessed Nancy's home and taken the cell phone? This is the frustrating part about this case, is that when I called Officer James Samuelson, he's not even willing to speak with me. Ron won't return my messages, and if they really wanted to, they could debunk my entire theory in explaining or answering any of my questions. Yeah, so, I mean, honestly, people like to just naturally say, hey, DNA test this, fingerprint this, and and just, it's almost like you kind of get this idea from TV shows almost in a way where it's like, Johnny on the spot, we could find out within a week or two, and it doesn't really work that way. Right. Yeah, I mean, even with regular lab results on a a homicide where we have someone in custody, it still takes several weeks for us to get the results that we're looking for. And then the other thing, you know, even in the academy, they teach you that everything that you touch touches you back, and there's a whole... uh, concepts of transference and such DNA and you're going to find it but a lot of times you know I could submit a gun that I have three witnesses that say this guy shot this other guy with it and we still don't get such DNA off of it one of those things that all depends kind of like fingerprints all depend on the conditions being right for that DNA to be preserved there I wrapped up my conversation with Detective Hamilton and something I want to share is in this process naturally I've always been well why didn't they submit this or why didn't they submit that but As you can understand, submitting five items, you have to choose what items you want to submit first. And it's not some sort of turnaround process that sometimes we can be influenced to think that that's how the process works at home when you're watching these TV shows. It's not a one week or two weeks later you have the results. Sometimes it can take months. Now, it feels good knowing that there's some good that's coming from this and we're submitting items for DNA now. It's bittersweet to know that it hasn't been submitted before, but we're doing it today. Now, one of the things that I ran by Mickey was something that I haven't shared with you guys yet because I wanted to kind of keep it under wraps. Kim Collins, you heard from a previous episode. She was a gal who helped with the search parties in Bev Poston when they went out looking for Nancy. 
Well, Kim every year puts a picture up of Nancy in the beginning of March in the break room at the Department of Ecology. Uh, for some reason, this year, when she put up the picture of Nancy, someone took it down and then they put it on the very bottom corner of the billboard. I asked Kim if she was the only one that handled that picture when she put it up. She said yes. And so my thought was, well, can you get it to me? Because your fingerprints and the person who moved it would be the only two that was on there. Kim mentioned that they didn't know who moved the picture. Now, in my opinion, for you to go take a picture down of a missing person, move it to the bottom corner, I feel that there's, I guess, bad feelings there or questionable intent. I mean, no one has come forward and said why they did it. Detective Hamilton and I have discussed the pros and cons of submitting this item for fingerprints and seeing who the individual was from the Department of Ecology that moved it. And I can't go into it, and there's reasons why, but I would be hurting the case almost in a way if I shared them with you. So I'm going to withhold, but let you guys know that that's something that I've now collected. It's in my possession and going to be giving over to Detective Hamilton. I reached out to Bill Moyer to see if there was any chance that he had kept any of Nancy's possessions or personal property over the years. I also wanted to see if he remembers the bag since Thurston County doesn't have it. In a way, I know that this is a long shot because if Bill kept a bag like this over the years, that would be a little odd. Uh, in, in Nancy's closet, there was uh, a bag labeled Angel. Okay. The, the items inside the bag were adult items. And what I found out, and one of the things that we wanted to submit for DNA testing, if it hadn't already been done, was the items in the bag. Well, okay, sure. I found out from Thurston County that they'd never collected the items in the bag and they never collected the bag itself. That, that's weird because we were just talking about it. And we don't remember when, when we received the house. I, I don't remember that bag being there. Really? No, uh-uh. We didn't dispose of anything like that. No, actually, Jill and I were talking about that because she'd help with part of the cleaning, and neither one of us remember that. Okay, so that's like technically kind of like the second item that we haven't found because... It's kind of, it's kind of real weird, actually, because, I mean, there was other lingerie and various items, but... And you I, remember I those, obviously. Yeah, I do remember those, yeah. As far as the Victoria's Secret bag, I, I don't recall that. Well, that's that's odd, because obviously it's not in Thurston County's possession, and... Which, once again, is kind of where I assumed it probably was, if there was such a thing. I mean, because you would remember that kind of item, I mean, because... I would think that would stand out, yeah. Because, like, when you went through her house and you were kind of cleaning her stuff out, were you having to kind of cipher through all the items inside to figure out what, what you needed to keep and what you didn't need to keep? Because you didn't know if she was technically still coming back. Yeah, no, that's kind of exactly what we did. And, you know, we, we held on to a lot of it in my garage for the better part of a year or so. When, when Jill and I got together and we actually moved to Aberdeen and sold the house, then uh, our two households to combine and, and then the, anything remaining from a third household, we certainly did not keep. So we do know that Detective Haller, when he originally went through Nancy's home, he did come across this bag. He chose not to collect it. And what his reasons were for not collecting this bag, I'm not sure. But I do feel like it could have been a strong piece of evidence if we did DNA test it and someone's DNA did come across that we haven't had on our radar yet. Now, I do have some good news, and that is I am now getting the entire case file, including photos and videos and additional reports that Mickey Hamilton is sending to me today. So now I want to update you guys on a recent visit I took to Tenino, and I stopped by Dave Strzok's house. 
He was the gentleman that the neighbor said she claimed to have seen Dave and Nancy riding bikes together not long before Nancy went missing. And if you recall in previous episodes, Dave's hung up on me a couple of times. When I arrived, it looked like Dave was having some sort of bonfire. Hey, Dave. Oh, it's here. Looks like there's a fire going on. Looks like he just put it out. Dave? So at that very moment, I was just on his driveway. Uh, I'm going to go to the front door. And to give you guys a visual, when you walk up to Dave's front doorsteps, he has a trailer that has a very small wooden porch in front of it. And with all the debris, it was a very narrow gap to walk through. It's got a lot of debris here. Uh, oh, wow. Um, his front door is open. Uh, I'm not going to... I'm not going to do this. I decided not to open or at least knock on the door because if I want to give someone a reason to, I guess, aggressively respond where I'm in a position having to defend myself. Remember, he's not a fan of me already. I chose to leave the property and give Dave a call later on that night. And I'll say, the conversation wasn't long, so I'm going to get right to it. Well, Dave, yeah, I mean, I was there earlier and all I want to do is talk to you and ask you a couple questions. Listen, I'm not going to talk to you unless you tell me who gave you my name. Well, I'll tell you who gave me your name, Dave, but we got to talk. You know, I don't give a shit. I don't give a fuck. I'm not going to talk to you. Don't call me the fuck back. So just so you guys know, you guys are just about all caught up to where I am at in my own investigation. I'm looking forward to getting my hands on the case file, and I'll be sure to be diving right into it as soon as I get my hands on it. Next time on Hide and Seek. Hello. Yeah, I'm here for a visitation. Yeah, my application was already submitted and approved. His name is Bernard Howell. She's a woman like a pagan Searching places that I never go Destroy walls within this Ain't no rock can stop me from getting through If you waited near the autumn watchers Saying I'd whisper